Okay, here we go. We got uh, Psalm 119, verse 169. This is the last of them, and then we'll be back in uh, Aleph again next week. So let me get this, 119. Okay, Tav, which is sticks crossed in the... Uh, it, uh, in the Paleo-Hebrew, it's actually a cross. So here we go. Let my cry come before you, O Lord. Give me understanding according to your word. Let my supplication come before you. Deliver me according to your word. My lips shall utter praise, for you teach me your statutes. My tongue shall speak of your word, for all your commandments are righteousness. Let your hand become my help, for I have chosen your precepts. I long for your salvation, O Lord, and your law is my delight. Let my soul live, and it shall praise you. And let your judgments help me. I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I do not forget your commandments. Good stuff there. Lord, open our eyes to your wonderful word. Let's see here. Um, uh, we're going to go to the Chicago Statement of faith we're in article 18 now and what does it say we affirm that the text of scripture is to be interpreted by grammatico historical exegesis exegesis means to draw out you got eisegesis which is what most christians do they insert what they believe into the bible exegesis means you draw out from the bible what the bible says so we affirm that the text of scripture is to be interpreted by grammatico that means the grammar historical that means the historical writings from that context drawing out exegesis taking account of its literary forms we got all kinds of literary forms in the bible you've got poetry and you've got you know apocalyptic literature you've got historical literature you've got all kinds of different literature in the bible you need to determine what is the proper literary form because if you don't then you're going to make an error but as we have seen such as in the book of we'll just go to jonah jonah is a what what section of the bible does jonah come from prophets thank you okay so it's from the prophets so you can expect that it would have prophecy in there which it does and at the same time it has a historical basis to it so it's kind of a writing and it also has pictures of christ so it's not just a prophecy it's also got pictures of christ coming if you remember everything about it esther was a historical writing it's from the the historical writings as a matter of fact it's the last of the historical writings it, but once again, it has pictures of Christ. It had prophecies. If you know what they're pointing to is the millennial reign of Christ. That was chapter 10 of Esther. So there is overlap, but the general text is what you want to do your determination from, which is that grammatico historical exegesis taking into account its literary forms and devices, and that scripture is to interpret scripture. Okay, I think that was Martin Luther that said that. Let uh, I got a nodding head. So that's what it is. Let scripture interpret scripture. When you don't do that, who is interpreting scripture? You are, right? You let scripture interpret scripture, and that is when you will come to a proper understanding of this verse and this verse together, give you an idea of what's going on. You don't just rip out a verse from context unless you're, you know, looking to uh, form a pretext. But if you want to properly interpret scripture, you will let scripture interpret scripture. You'll do it from a grammatical, historical context, and etc. We deny the legitimacy of any treatment of the text or quest for sources lying beyond it that leads to relativizing, dehistoritizing, or distorting its teaching or rejecting its claims to authorship. That's I brought that up in um, uh, the first number sermon, is that a lot of scholars try to date the books of Moses 
hundreds, even almost a thousand years later or more. And they say it was written of the time of the Babylonian Empire. And what did they do? They have what they've got um, uh, people that they say, this person wrote this part of the uh, books of Moses. This person wrote this part and they give them a designation. One of them is P because he was a priest that wrote this part. And then D, a Deuteronomist, he was a second writer. He added stuff in here. And then they have the uh, Y people, which is Yahweh, okay? So you have, and then you have one more, which is, or actually it's J, Jehovah, but J, D, E, Elohim. So you've got four categories that they say wrote the books of Moses. You've got the Elohists who wrote about God in general. Elohim means God, okay? Then you've got the Yahwists, which would be the people that write about the Lord. So one verse might have Lord and God in it. They say this part of this verse was written by one person, this part was written by another. And then this obviously was written by a priest because it's dealing with sacrifices, which didn't exist in this time in human history. And they make up all of this kind of stuff. It's called the um, documentary hypothesis. And if you want to waste your time, read up on the do documentary hypothesis. It's completely nonsense. How do we know? I'm going to show you one. Um, as a matter of fact, because we're talking about right here, let me go get my, um, I'll be back. The camera is going to go up and then down, but this will show you something. The documentary hypothesis says that the books of Moses were written by multitudes of people. And I have something here that I did not find this one, but they're found all the way through the um, Bible. Anybody know what I'm going to pull out? Chiasms. Chiasms. Okay, so we have chiasms. And um, let me see if I can find one. I've found lots and lots of them myself, but let me see if I can find one. Uh, this will only take a second if I can find it. Samuel. I like Samuel. Um, Hosea. Okay, that one's incomplete. So let me see if I got one back here. People ask for them and I give them to them and I never replace. Ah, here we go. Okay, here's some chiasms right here. Let me see Genesis, Genesis, Exodus. Okay, let's go back to Genesis. Oh, it's probably at the back of them because um, it's not one I found and I don't want to include it in the ones that I found. Okay, I can't find it. Anyway, I'm just going to tell you about it because I don't have it copied here. But if you type it in, chiasm from the flood of Noah, it covers the entire flood of Noah from Genesis 6, I think, all the way through Genesis 9. And it is perfect. It is absolutely astonishing to see. 150 days here, 150 days here, 40 days here, 40 days here. Water goes over the mountains, water uncovers the mountains. And it's right down to the very middle anchor verse, which is, and God remembered Noah. And this could not have been written hundreds of years later by four different people because it's a perfect chiasm. It completely blows away the documentary hypothesis. And that's just one of dozens and dozens and dozens of chiasms which are found in the book of Genesis. So what they're saying is here, we deny that type of nonsense in the Chicago Statement of Faith. We say that's nonsense and we don't subscribe to that. Um, they go on, they say... Um, uh, we deny the legitimacy of any treatment of the text or quest for sources lying beyond it, behind it, that leads to relativizing. Behind it means J-E-D-P, Jehovah's, Yahweh, uh, Elohists, and priests. We deny that nonsense. Dehistoricizing, it means that Moses wrote it. We Anybody that says that Moses didn't write it, how do we know that Moses wrote the books of Moses? Jesus said, he did. Jesus said he did. That's all we need. We don't need to go any further than that. How do we know that Noah actually existed? Once again, Jesus cites Noah. He cites the flood of Noah as we're in the days of Noah, right? Okay. We don't need to go any further. We don't have to go any further unless we want to completely deny the Christian faith. If you want to do that, then believe these people. Take heed to them. 
pay attention to them and throw away your, your theology and your doctrine and your soul. Absolutely crazy people, okay? Jesus said it, and everything that you see in the Bible confirms itself, like that chiasm. It perfectly confirms that that entire narrative of Noah was written by one man, actually one divine source through one man, yes. How do you spell that? Chiasm, C-H-I-S-A-S-M, C-H-I-A-S-M. Okay, yeah, right here, I'll write it down. Just And if you want to see lots and lots of them and the ones that I've found, just go to wonderfulone.com, wonderful in the numeral one, C-H-I-A-S-M. Okay, go to wonderfulone, W-O-N-D-E-R-F-U-L, one.com. Okay, go there, and then what you need to do is look for the page on there that says chiasms in the Bible, and you'll find lots and lots and lots of them. I got them here but I don't have all of them because I didn't find them all and God's I don't want to. God's fingerprints. God's fingerprints all over the Bible. And they prove without a doubt that that was a single source. You can't have all these sources coming together and have such, and that's just one thing. There are all kinds of other things that prove the uh, uh, that this is nonsense. I'll finish up that sentence and we'll go on. Um, uh, how, where was that? Uh, Dehistoritizing de or distorting its teaching or rejecting its claim to authorship. Once again, if somebody says that this is a book of like Paul, then we take it at face value because Paul wrote it. The people could have disputed it how long ago? 2,000 years ago? They haven't disputed it. So we'll stick with the Bible and we'll stick with God's word as it is written. We're not going to go with that kind of nonsense. Okay, let me uh, read a couple prayer requests and then we'll pray and then we'll get started. Um, Got to praise Janae, I, I think I'm pronouncing her name right, um, who we prayed for some weeks ago. Had a very bad neck, needs surgery, and she's just been terrible pain. Uh, we prayed for her and she called her friend and said, I'm feeling better. So uh, prayers work uh, better after we prayed for her. She is, um, I, I said that, okay, um, and then we want to continue to pray for Carol, who told us about her friend, Janae. Uh, she's been trying to discover what to do with her horse, Jake, and uh, he's kind of a rogue horse and uh, a, a bit of a burden to handle, and should I keep him? Should I, and she wants prayer for that, so we'll pray for that. And uh, Jill in North Carolina, who uh, needs a job, and the application, she's older, all she has is an iPad, and everything has to be done online nowadays. And it, she says it's very difficult. It's been very hard to uh, uh, use her iPad to fill out these applications, and she's um, uh, having difficulty with that. And then she, her air conditioning in her car is not working, so she cannot visit her aunt because she can't physically take the heat this time of year for the long drive to visit her aunt. So we want to keep her in prayer about that and hope that that'll get resolved soon. And uh, then one announcement, and then we'll pray. Um, numbers, if anybody looks for the podcasts, you know, listening instead of watching, the Numbers podcast has not been able to go up yet because iTunes keeps disapproving it being included. Well, probably what it is, is the web guy has been putting it under Numbers. And there's probably a store called Numbers in Sarasota, I, I'm sorry, in, in America or something, and you can't have replicas. So he's changed it today to Book of Numbers, and it'll probably be accepted. But if you've been trying to get that podcast, you ain't going to get it until it gets uploaded, and we have to find out the right way of uploading it. So um, there you go. Numbers is not up, and we apologize. It will eventually be up, but uh, we just got to find the right way to do it. So let's pray for these things and, and uh, other things. Darla as well, who's in her rehab with her hip that popped out she's still in pain but she's getting better so heavenly father you know that we lift up all the people that we mentioned and anybody else that uh has requested prayer over the past week privately or or in one way or another and we would ask that you would be with them 
help them with their troubles and their afflictions and the people that are facing forest fires and and just just an abundance of difficulty in this world and it seems like it's getting worse everywhere so lord we would lift these things up to you and just ask you to uh, even if you don't take away the afflictions you just give us the peace that passes all understanding through them give us the re reassurance and the reminder that you are there with us through the storm and that you have a much better home for us where these things won't be a part of our lives so we thank you for the chance to uh, pray for these things and we also ask that uh uh, you just uh, give us that comfort that we pray for, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, as far as Darla, she's she when she did pop out her hip and she was stuck in, I think she said the bathtub or the shower for two hours. Shower, two and, um, hours. Two and a half hours. She said all I did the whole time was talk to Jesus. Well, what else and are you going to do? And she said she said that Mark was supposed to go to meetings. Yeah. She oh yeah. Came home first, and I go. I wonder what made him come. Her prayer? Yeah, that's right. Prayer works. Absolutely right. Okay, so we are in Romans chapter 13 and verse 13. So let's see here. Romans 13, 13, um, 10, 11, 12. 13 comes after 12 and before 14. So there we are. Romans 13. Oh, what we're going to do is we're going to go back to 11 just so we have the context. And do this, knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for our salvation is nearer than we first believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand, therefore let us cast off the works of darkness, and let us put on the armor of light. Let us, verse 13, walk properly, as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy. Okay, here we go. Comments on verse 13. Paul uses the common idiom walk, which he uses all through his writings to describe the way to conduct one's life. When he says, let us walk properly, he's saying that then we should conduct our lives properly, right? Okay, there you go. When we walk about, we interact with others. We converse with others. We set our paths on certain goals and so on. Therefore, as we walk about doing any of these or a myriad of other things, we should remember our conduct and select honorable destinations. And sometimes we just forget, you know, we're walking in our course of life and we forget and we do something that isn't so honorable. Well, in that case, then we just talk to the Lord about it and get back on the right path or to walk properly. To describe this proper walking, Paul says that it should be as in the day. You've got a contrast. You've got day and you've got night. Jesus says, now is your time, the night when, in darkness, right? When he was being accosted. Day and night in the Bible, you know, contrast each other. You've got goodness, you've got bad. You've got, you know, um, uh, holiness and you've got evil and all these different things contrasting and they all are like darkness and light. When one walks at night, they can't see clearly where they're heading. It's also harder to see where one's foot is going to step. Tripping becomes easier. Falling into a pit may happen or even bumping into a nice hard wall is a possibility. And one thing that I do, this happens more often than you would expect, is I will get up in the middle of the night, as guys my age do, and I will be walking like this, and it happens, I can't tell you how many times this has happened. I'll walk in the door, hits me right in my face, because what, yes! And so I try to remember to do this, but when you're tired, you're not thinking about it. No nightlights. No, I'm sorry. It's, this is, but it happens so often. We're boom, right, right in my face. I, I can't tell you how many times that happened. Hey, it's not as bad as what happened to Hidako. Okay, so you never heard that. Okay, here, here's we got a room. We've got another room. We've got a bathroom here, 
And so you want, you're down here and you want to turn and go into the room. Well, she was walking and she turned too soon. And instead of walking into the room, she stepped down the stairs and went all the way down the stairs and her head hit the wall. Mom, is mom here? Do you remember that day? Her head was this big. It was like Frankenstein. This is, oh, eight, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, maybe. The kids were young. Okay, so her head is this big, and the next morning it was green as that chair. And I said, oh, we got to take you to the doctor. She says, no, I'm going to work. Uh, yeah. So, no, I said, no, you're going to the, the, the emergency clinic right now. Because, you know, she said she was okay at night, and by the morning she'd swolled up. So we took her to the... Um, the uh, emergency clinic and they checked her out and they said you have you know whatever on but you're okay you're not going to die and they said does anything else hurt and she says oh my back really hurts she had a broken back she broke her back and she wanted to go to work with this giant head and a broken but she's a tough cookie i'm telling you do, do not mess with japanese woman with a ginsu knife oh boy um what's that She's married to Charlie. Yeah, she's... <laughs> That'll do it. That'll toughen you up. Anyway, so we're walking in the light. Don't fall down the stairs when you do. And it's all hard stairs all the way down. There's no soft or anything. It's just hardwood and then a concrete wall at the end. So, yeah, it was a bad bed. And she just wanted to get out there and get to work. So, tough lady. Okay, so um, let's see here. Tripping. Okay, the spiritual symbolism of walking at night is of one of improper or unhealthy conduct. Just like Hidako falling down the stairs. That's not proper. It's not normal. Okay, so we're making a spiritual application of these things. And as examples of such conduct, he says we should not walk in revelry, which is a word I find always hard to pronounce, and drunkenness. Excessive alcohol leads to belligerence and fighting. I don't care if you say you can handle it or you, you can't. There's a point where you drink too much, you're going to get belligerent and you're going to fight. Okay? Someone who is already a loudmouth will only increase in that manner when they're in a stupor. The natural result of hanging out at bars all night is trouble. Paul asks us to consider who we belong to and the name that we bear and not to allow ourselves to diminish others' perceptions of Christ through this type of behavior. You know, I leave here and I, it's 12.30 or 1 o'clock. I leave between 12.30 and 1 o'clock on Sunday every week. And every week I get over the bridge and I start heading south. And right there is the bar that's been there now for about 70 years, uh, 40, 49. So uh, almost, yeah, 69 years. And um, uh, Sunday morning, there he is out front sitting there drinking. Somebody, out, sometime three or four of them, Sunday morning. And they, they're already there, so they've probably been there for a while. And I think, what a way to run your life, you know? Yeah, anyway, so... No, they're not running their life. The bottle is. Anyway, he next mentions lewdness and lust. This was a common attitude in the Roman and Greek areas of Paul's time, and it is ever increasing in the world again today. I mean, there's just no doubt about this. I typed this three years ago, and I, I say it from time to time in the Prophecy Update. I wouldn't have even spoken the things that we're doing now. I wouldn't have mentioned them. I would have just said, I've got something and I can't read it to you, but I want you to know the world's getting gross. And now it's common. It's just every day. So I can say it because everybody sees it in the news. So example, example. This is years ago, but we had Comcast when we came back from overseas, 1993. We had cable. And they would raise the rates every six months or so, which is their business. That's fine. Raise the rate 30 cents or whatever. No problem. You're running a business. You need to adjust, okay? But um, one time they made a deal. They were supposed to go up for their bid. Every five years back then, they went up for a bid. 
and Paragon wanted to bid against them. And they said to the Sarasota County Commission, this is why we have a county commission channel here in Sarasota. So they said, we will give you a channel if you will allow us to have a $5 increase because we have to pay for that channel, right? And Sarasota County Commission approved that. They said, okay, because they wanted to be on TV. They wanted to be a hit, right? And so they raised the rates. And I, I called them and I said, I'm canceling today. She said, we have never had so many cancellations in one day. I said, you know the difference between those people and me? I won't be back. And we didn't have cable for years. And now Tangie, my daughter, is in college. This is how much later it is. It's like 10 years later. She's in college up in uh, um, uh, Tennessee. And she did something really, really stinky. And this is seven o'clock in the morning. I got in my car. I told my boss, I'm going to Tennessee. And I drove up there and I had a talk with her at dinner time. And I drove back and I got to uh, Georgia and I was just too tired to make the rest of the way back. And so I stopped in a hotel, standard cable, standard cable. And I was so appalled at what I saw. Everybody else was just stewed into it. They had no idea because they'd just been watching TV all these years. I couldn't believe what I was watching after 10 years the difference on standard cable. I, it was just perverted. And it, today that is absolutely nothing compared to what you see on the TV. But we get stewed and we don't think about it. And this is what Paul is warning us against right here is watch out, don't fall into these things. What was it, lewdness and lust. I mean, what I saw then, I was so horrified after, at seeing that, that they would have that on public TV. And today you'll see that on Mickey Mouse channel. I mean, it's just not, it, nothing compared to it. So. Uh, it's the common attitude in the Roman and Greek Empire. It's happening again. Young TV stars grow up, and along with their fame comes a desire to continue to be noticed. And so they will stretch what is morally acceptable to see how far they can go. As they do, young eyes notice, and then they emulate what they see. And quickly, society has been reduced to doing anything in order to grab attention, no matter how profane. And we see it even on Facebook now, just something that's posted that's just vulgar, right? Quickly, society has been reduced to doing anything in order to grab that attention. With the advent of the internet, someone can demonstrate the most vile perversions to millions of people, and then others want to join in, and they want to do something more, so they start getting the hits. It is a cycle of depravity which we are asked to refrain from. We are to conduct ourselves in a circumspect manner, remembering that the Lord is not pleased with sexually immoral behavior. How do we know that? Because it says, despite what people say, despite what these churches that condone this type of stuff say nowadays, here's what it says. Um, let's see here. We'll go to Revelation 22. And um, let's see here. Um, uh, verse 8, 20, 21, verse 8. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. And then it says here in the last page of the Bible, it says, he who is unjust, let him be unjust still. He who is filthy, let him be filthy still. And he who is righteous, let him be righteous still. He who is holy, let him be holy still. And then down in verse 15, finishing up right towards the very end of the Bible, but outside are the dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and whoever loves and practices a lie. Sexually immoral. All over the last two pages of the Bible, and yet churches today say that it's the right thing to do. We've got to have our little flag up. We've got to ordain people to do this type of thing. We've got to marry them. If you don't, you can't be a priest in our denomination. It is utterly appalling. It's, it's insane. It's, yeah, it's absolutely crazy. 
But most of these people in these churches haven't been saved for generations. They probably since the 60s and 70s. A lot of what happened, just so you know, because you may not realize this, but what happened, especially in the Korean War, the big war is over. People were tired of war. The Korean War came, and then especially after that, the Vietnam War was even worse. Is people did not want to go. A lot of people went to Canada. A lot of people just tore up their cards and said they challenged the government. But a lot of them said, I'm going to go to seminary because I know that that's a protection. I, I will go to seminary and I will not be called up because this is a person that's going to be a priest. And so what do they do? They're in seminary. They don't believe in anything or they believe what the, the insane people out in California were doing at the time or Kent State. And that's the type of people. But they knew that this would be one a, a place where they could get a great job. It's a place where they could be safe from defending their, yeah. And so what did they do? They get ordained. They go into professorships. They go into the seminaries. That's why the seminaries just took a dive after these two wars. And then the churches, very quickly, they started to put those people into positions. They moved up into bigger churches and they moved up into the leadership and they kept bringing in these people with their same agenda. They've got the same unholy agenda, and now those denominations are utterly unsaved. And the people in them, most of them have never... Uh, listen, I grew up in the Episcopal Church. I went with them. They were there. But I grew up in a generation where they didn't tell you you need to be saved. You just heard they talk about things, and they never told kids you needed to call on Jesus. I didn't know anything about that. If somebody didn't take me out to the tabernacle, I never would have heard that. And I was 13 at the time, right? Mom was there. How long were you? You were there when they first opened, weren't you? The Episcopal Church? The Oh, short, very shortly after. Right, shortly after that church, right? She was, when was it? It was 2001. Within a couple months of me, she's listening to the radio. Hank Lindstrom, and she'd listen to him every day for like a year. Yeah, he explained it every day. Four times during a 30-minute uh, talk, he would say, you need to be saved. You need to receive Jesus. And finally, one day, after hearing it, probably, what, 800 times? I need Jesus. I, yeah, click, right? You, well, you don't get that in these churches. So the answer is that no, many, many, many of them are not saved. That doesn't mean they're not all saved. I'm not, you know, what does it say? Let me read this to you right here. I'll take, and then we'll get back into Romans. It says in Revelation chapter three, you go down to verse four. I love to use this verse when people say there aren't any saved Catholics or something. That's stupid. Here's what it says. You have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments and they shall walk with me in white for they are worthy. Even in bad churches, there are good people. So we don't want to be too finger pointy, but I would say that a large number of the people in any denomination have never heard the gospel. They have no idea. They just think they're working their way to heaven and doing good things and ain't going to work. Anyway, so let's go on. Um, cycle of depravity. Um, we are conductor. Yeah, I said that. Okay. Finally, in this verse, strife and envy are noted. Strife is the constant argumentative attitude, which many possess and many more are getting daily on Facebook. It doesn't matter what they believe. Doesn't matter at all. They will always take a contrary side to an issue. I worked with a guy like this and I called him a contrarian. It didn't matter what you said. You could come in and say that it was raining outside and he says, oh no, look, it's sunny. It didn't matter what you said. He was a contrarian to the very end. If you came in and you said, I really like those shoes that you're wearing, Bob, he'd say, Bob, those shoes are disgusting. Why would you? He would just jump in. It didn't matter what you said. And there are people like that. They just love to be contrary. Okay. It doesn't matter what you believe, what they believe, they will take the contrary side. They want to argue their point, and that happens on Facebook constantly, okay? Strife could also include having a litigious attitude. 
when someone sues another for minor or dubious reasons, they are causing harm to others, right? These are all parts of normal life. I mean, we can't not talk about them. We can't just hide and say, well, this doesn't happen. This is what Paul is telling us about, and we have to be aware of it. It doesn't matter what the medium is, whether it's Facebook or whether it's in church. It doesn't matter if it's in the office environment. If we don't talk about it, we cannot see it happening. You know, some people say, well, you shouldn't talk about this or that during the Bible study. I'm sorry. We have to warn people of the medium that they are in, whether it's in the church or whether it's on Facebook or whether it's here or there. You need to pay attention to find out if this is happening because if you're not processing it, it's just affecting you passively. And eventually you get hardened to it. You have to make yourself aware of the things that you see, okay? When, let me read that again. When someone sues another for minor or dubious reasons, they are causing harm to others. Suits should be used only in circumstances where actual harm has resulted. And unfortunately, I've got a friend that was actually harmed, and she's tried to get a lawyer to take care of this. She was in a, uh, uh, a facility like what Hedico takes care of or what Darla's in. She was in there for a long time. She was really broken up, and lawyers wouldn't take it because of the area that she lived in, and it was kind of, um, you know, the good old boy district type of thing, very small. Anyway, so, yeah, some, yeah. Some people that need, they need something, help, they can't get it. And then you get people that just continuously sue. They continuously sue. So, and you're harming people when you do that. And the harm must have been truly the negligent conduct of another. Spilling hot coffee on oneself is not a just and honorable reason for suing the maker of the coffee. It is perverse. If you know what I'm talking about, that 70-year-old lady that ordered coffee at McDonald's, and she took it out, she started drinking, and she spilled on herself, and she sued McDonald's. Imagine the perverse attitude of somebody like that. And that's why every coffee cup that you have in America today is stamped with caution, hot. Well, what are you drinking coffee for if you don't know that? If you, if you order cold coffee, that's what you're going to get. If you order hot coffee, that's what you're going to get. I mean, we're talking about people that are literally depraved to do something like that. Okay, envy. Envy is from the word zelo, which is jealousy. No, well, yeah, zeal or zeal, jealousy. Yeah, same same type of. It is a fervid passion, but it is misdirected passion. In Galatians four eighteen, Paul says, "But it is good to be zealous in a good thing always." The reciprocal is true too. Misdirected zeal is always a bad thing. It's never good. We must use the Bible as our standard for the things that we are zealous for. If the Bible is silent on an issue, then our zeal is acceptable as long as it doesn't turn into an idol. Okay? Some people, I think I've said it in this class, maybe not, is that uh, a professor that I had, he uh, had a friend of his that was zealous for baseball. Right? He was, that was his whole life. And then he met the Lord and he couldn't go to a baseball game anymore. He just he couldn't do it because that was his idol. And he even got down on people that went to the baseball games. He said, what are you doing? Well, they didn't have that problem. But there are people that are Christians that are actually zealous for baseball to a point where it takes precedent over their religious life. It takes precedent over their going to church or it takes precedent over whatever part of their life they should. Baseball is fine. There's nothing wrong with it. Go to a baseball game. If you, you know, you want to go out to play pool or, you know, whatever. I don't do any of those things. So, but if that's what you like to do, but just don't be overzealous for it where it becomes an idol in your life. If it replaces your love of the Lord or if it harms your relationship with the Lord, it's becoming an idol. You need to either drop it or you need to 
cut it down, way down. Even social media can do that. You can get so consumed with social media that all you do is get on there. And you, Now, there are people. I got a friend out in California, and she is absolutely marvelous. Some of you are friends with her on Facebook, and she is all day long posting Jesus. Jesus all day long. The rapture's coming. Get ready. If you're not ready, you ain't going. And, you know, she'll post something about, it's all day long. You hear about Jesus, Jesus. That's zealous for the Lord. There's nothing wrong with what she's doing. But some people will take Facebook and they'll do just the opposite. So you have to be circumspect in whatever medium you are in, okay? Somebody emailed me yesterday and asked about technology and how it was affecting the world that we're in. And I said, no, technology is, anybody? It's neutral. It's neutral. It is not good. It is not bad. Technology is completely neutral. It is what you do with technology that is good or bad, okay? If somebody says you shouldn't be on Facebook, or you shouldn't be on uh, uh, reading this, or you should never be on the internet, or whatever else, they are wrong. I am on the internet 10 hours every day, especially on Monday, and I am all day long on the internet looking at BibleHub.com, BibleGateway.com, Aberdeen Publications. I'm looking at all of these things, and I'm reading, you know, I'll go to Young's Literal Concordance of the Bible, uh, or his translation of the Bible, and I, that's all I do all day long. Is that wrong? No, technology is neutral. Now, I could be on a site that has things that I shouldn't be looking at, right? Then I'm using it for the wrong purposes. So you have to determine where you are going to have your eyes lay with technology or what you're going to do with your phone. I don't have that problem, but you guys do. I think everybody here except me has that problem. But your phone can become an idol. It can consume you. When my son comes over, oh, he goes, not here. First thing I say is you take that and you put it in your pocket. I don't want to see it because if you do, you're out of the house. When you're here with us, we're having dinner and you are not on that phone. I don't see you enough as it is. And so no phone. And that's all there is to it. I, you know what? I just, no, I, I'm your dad. I love you enough where I want to have a conversation with you and eat dinner and whatever else, but no phone. So, uh, and you know, if it's important, it'll beep and he can get it in a minute or two, you know, whatever. Go into the bathroom and pretend like you're washing your hands and whatever, but not around me. Okay, um, let's see here. So, um, Mr. Etkinsale is a bad thing. Okay, for example, it is wonderful to be zealous for hard work. And the Bible commends hard work, doesn't it? Right? But we can make hard work an end in and of itself. Before I met the Lord, or before I really came to the Lord, because, you know, I, I probably met the Lord when I was 13 at the tabernacle, but I don't know that. I, I know that I met the Lord for sure in 2001. But um, before that time, I worked seven days a week. I, I do the same now, don't get me wrong. But I worked seven days a week. I would leave before it was light, and I would come home after it was dark every day of the week. Okay, I had about seven different jobs. One of them was a full-time job, and then I had other jobs. Okay. And when I met the Lord, I said, I'm going to take a day off and I'm going to give it to the Lord. And I couldn't do it. I tell you, I, 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 I was like this. I, I was just beside myself. I, I, it, it was absolutely very difficult. But eventually I began to like it and I began to enjoy it. And I found out something. I didn't give up one of my jobs, not one of them. And I got every one of them done in the same six, in six days instead of seven. I never went to one of those jobs ever on the seventh day. Now I'm a preacher, so I'm working every day, but that's different. It's, you know, I, I, the, the responsibility now is different. But then I had all of those jobs, before, literally, you ask Hideko Shilte, I left before it was uh, light, I came home after it was dark, and I worked all the time. But when I took that day off and we went to church and we spent the whole day out there and we spent the whole day together, 
I'd never lost any of that work. And it was probably done even better than it was before. So the Lord will, he will honor you if you honor him. That's the lesson of that story, okay? But don't make work your passion. Because if you do, if that becomes your passion, then Jesus isn't your passion. I got to tell you what, if you're not in church on Sunday morning, unless you just don't want to be there. You know, some people want to watch online. That's fine. I mean, I, I, I'm not one to complain about that. But if you're not doing something productive for the Lord on Sunday morning or one day a week, Tuesday morning or whatever day they have a, a service over in Zimbabwe, if you want to attend there, whatever. But if you're not devoting time to the Lord, it's all being devoted somewhere. So take time to honor the Lord with your week. And I am not peculiar about, you know, you got to do it on Saturday. You got to do it on Sunday. Paul says in Romans 14, which we're getting to very soon, that one esteems one day, everybody, yeah, one day above the other. And some esteem every day the same. Let each man do, you know, according to as he sees it. All right. There is none of this legalism. But I do think that whatever you do, you should have the Lord in your in your life during the week. Okay. And if you don't, then eventually something's going to fill that place. So just it, it, there's a balance. Don't be legalistic, but at the same time, self-impose your standards and stick to them. Okay. Um, when I say don't be legalistic, I'm talking about having people force that on you. That's what I mean. Okay. Um, hard work and end in of itself, it can become an overriding passion and thus replace our devotion to God. Setting aside a day of rest in one's work week is a wonderful thing as it helps us to redirect our thoughts away from what otherwise consumes our time. Now, like I say, I'm on all day, every day, I'm on the internet and it's always questions about the Bible. It's always people asking questions, help and needs and stuff. doesn't bother me at all. I, it's being focused towards the Lord. I'm happy with it. So I, it's not like I feel like I'm, and I get time off. Fridays aren't always full. And sometimes, you know, Wednesday, I get a little extra time off, whatever. But when I do, then I go out and do something because I, I just can't sit in the house. I, I just can't do it. Uh, anyway, life application here. Paul tells us to work as in the day. Our life should be plainly and evidently seen by those around us. Our conduct should be honorable and glorifying of Christ. If we act in a manner which belies our calling, then he will be diminished in the eyes of those who see us. Okay, that's the important thing there, um, is when you go out into the world, you are representing Christ if you say you're a Christian. And when people see you, you want them to say, I want what that guy has. I want the peace he has. Or when somebody has a problem, they want to say, I want to go ask him, what about, what do you recommend? That you want to be that kind of example where they come to you and they say, I know there's something about you that I want or I need. That's, that's the best way to be. Okay, verse 13, 14, let's see here. Um, but, oh, this is the last of chapter 13, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. So he says, first and last verse, let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. We've come to the end of chapter 13 with a most beautiful prescription. Paul begins with, but. This is to contrast what was stated in verse 12, where we are to cast off the works of darkness. Instead of being clothed in such deeds, we are, to, we are admonished to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. An exchange is to be made in our lives when we call on Christ. Salvation is not the end of the story. It is the beginning of a beautiful new one. And way too many Christians think I'm saved and that is it. I know people that have that attitude that they have been Christians many, many, many long years. And I got saved back in 1984, right? That's what they'll tell you. 
and they've really done nothing at all for Jesus since then. They're saved. They're not going to lose that salvation, but they have wasted the opportunity of being on fire for the Lord. They have wasted it. Okay, so you you are beginning something when you come to Christ. It doesn't just end and now I'm in Christ and that's it. You're beginning what could be a great, great path if you choose it. It may seem odd that we are to put on a person, but this was an idiom of Greek literature. To put on another means to take on his qualities, follow his principles, and this imitate his life and mannerisms and walk in the same spirit as that person. It is an idiom of complete emulation of that person. And this is what Paul is asking of us, to adorn ourselves with the likeness of Jesus Christ. In so doing, we are to make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. No provision at all. The flesh or the earthly human nature is contrary to life in Christ. Instead of gratifying our old Adam, we are to be emulators of and pleasing to our new master, Jesus. The manner in which he walked, we are to walk. The attitudes he displayed are to be displayed by us. He was meek, gentle, loving, caring, caring of those who were ignorantly lost in sin. At the same time, he was strong and aggressive against those who looked at their own self-righteousness and who denied that they were in need of God's grace and mercy. Okay, lots and lots of churches will focus on the loving Jesus right? Especially the ones we were talking about earlier. Jesus is love, and so we should not condemn our fellow brother because he's gay, okay? That is not the Jesus of the Bible. He rebuked sin. He spoke against people that acted wickedly, especially when they flaunted it. He saw the need of sinners when they were stuck in alcoholism or when they were stuck in prostitution, and he would go and say, there's another way. But he did not condone what they did, one of the uh, things that people love to cite is the story of Jesus when he is being faced by the leaders of Israel with the woman caught in adultery, right? And what do they do? They say, well, what do you say? The law says that we're to stone this person or try to get him. And he says, he sits down and he writes, okay, and then he gets up and he says, Whoever hears without sin cast the first stone, right? And they all dropped their stones and walked away, right? It's the end of the story. Absolutely not. To them, to these churches, that's where the story ends. What's the last thing he said to her? Sin. That's right. Go and sin no more. All right. They drop that completely out of their sermons. They drop it completely out of their, their theology. They drop it completely out of their conduct towards people that are flaunting their sin. That woman had a choice now. She can go back and do it again, and next time the law will not have mercy on her, okay? Or she can sit no more, right? That is what Jesus expects. The story does not end with the dropping of the stones and a bunch of people walking away, okay? Got a question for you. This is something that uh, Rhoda was reading. I'd never considered this. What did he write in? What, not, not, what? Sand. Anybody else? In the dust. In the dust. Wrote those guys' names. <laughs> but what did he write in? She says sand, she said dust. Where was he? He was in the temple, and the entire temple was paved. It had a, a and she said, what did he write? He just, I, I have no idea, but he, he, it was evident enough for people to see, but it wasn't in the sand. It wasn't in the dust. 
It was it was all paved in the temple complex. They actually have found the tiles and they know exactly what they look like and where they were, everything about it. So it was a very good question. That Rhoda, she just there may have been a lot of dust on the the, the uh, tiles. That's right. But yeah, if he wanted dust, he would. Yeah, he could make some more dust and put it down there for him. Absolutely. But it was a very good question because I had never considered that. What's that? Moses wrote on the stone. Yes, he wrote. Actually, God did. The finger of God wrote in it. But yes, yeah. So yeah, he, yeah. You know what? He actually may have just got his finger right into that tile and and it left an image i know i'm just i'm just saying we have no idea but it was a very good question because we assume because we've seen the movie we've seen the uh, story and jesus always you know uh, passion of the christ they're outside somewhere and they all have then she asked well where did they get the stones because they're in the temple right what did they have a, a bag of stones over there to stone people just in case they did an infraction in the temple Good questions. I have no idea. It's something that we'll find out from the Lord because who knows? But that was, I think that was my answer to her as I said, you know, they're in the temple and if somebody goes over that line, they're to take them out and stone them. So maybe they kept baskets of stones there. Who knows? I, I have no idea. Good question though. Anyway, okay. Um, where are we? Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Here we are. Those who seek, see a weak and over-tolerant Jesus completely miss how he handled the arrogant, proud, and boastful. Putting on Christ, then, is to put on the complete Christ. We are to be loving to those who need love, caring to those who are down and out, and meek with those who are humble. We are also to be stern and strong as we stand against those who promote perversion, divisiveness, arrogance, and a haughty, self-righteous attitude. That's what Jesus did. That is what we are to do. We are to put on Christ. Life application, we are to put on Christ in all of his glory standing firm against the deeds of darkness and the lusts of the flesh. In order to fulfill this, we must know how he acted and when he took action. We must know our Bible. Be sure to have a complete picture of who Jesus is. Okay, verse 14, one, we're in a whole new chapter. Where is Jim? Oh, I didn't know that. He said he told you. He probably did, and I just yeah. didn't pay attention. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 that's probably the case. Because he travels so much, I'm just like, okay, you know. But I, I thought that you guys wouldn't be here um, last week, but you would be here this week. So I, I'm here. I know you are, and that's why I was surprised when you walked in. I was thoroughly surprised when you walked in because no, I, Albuquerque. I mean, when you walked in with Adam, no, because no, I thought I you both be here. No, well, I wouldn't want to go to Albuquerque either. It's we're in Sarasota, Florida. Yeah, Where else would you want to go? Okay, first fourteen one. Receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things oh boy let me tell you what we could go on all day with this one but we'll just stick with the comments and go on uh in chapter 14 paul now turns to the concepts of liberty and license okay we are free in christ we do not have license to sin in christ okay there's a giant difference between the two in particular he will use food and drink along with days of rest and worship to show how we can easily err in our liberty not in exercising it, by, but by lording it over others with less knowledge than we may have. What is for us freedom from sin for the individual can easily turn into the cause of sin for ourselves or for others. We do not have license to sin or to cause others to do so. And so he begins with receive one who is weak in the faith. A person who is weak in the faith is not someone who lacks faith in Christ. Does everybody see the difference? I have faith in Christ does not mean that I will be strong in the faith. 
okay? You can have faith in Christ and still be weak in your faith, okay? Either a person has faith and is saved, or they lack faith and they are not saved. That's the end of that story, okay? Let's stop right there, just so we have this right. I'm going to take you back to Romans chapter 10, because this great question from my friend. He emailed me a day ago, and we talked about it, and I said, no, we can't go that far. He said, what about these people that believe you can lose your salvation? He said, are they really saved at all? And I said, what does Romans 10, 9, and 10 say? It says right there in Romans 10, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That is it. That is salvation. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. That has nothing to do with doctrine after that. People can have the craziest doctrine in the world and still be saved. Okay, and there are a lot of crazy doctrines out there. What salvation is not made difficult for a person coming to Christ. That is it. We don't add to the gospel, we don't take from it. If you want it defined, before we go on, I'll take you to 1 Corinthians chapter um, 15, and I'll read you just what the gospel is. That's Paul tells us what it is to be saved in Romans 9. He defines it in Romans 15. He says there, uh, I'm going to save, uh, we'll just start with one. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and in which you stand. This is it. If you receive it, you stand in that faith, by which you also are saved, if you hold fast to the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Okay? If you believed properly, if you believed in your heart, then you are saved. For I delivered to you, first of all, here it is, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins, one, according to the scriptures. And that he was buried, two, and that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. That's it. Everything else is added and that he was seen by Cephas. And we don't have to believe that. We don't even have to ever hear that Paul saw Jesus. We don't. All we need to know is that he died for our sins, he was buried, and he rose the third day. And that is the confession of Romans 10, 9, and 10. Okay, that's the substance of it, and that is the confession that you make. Okay, if you believe that, you are saved. Any doctrine after that is secondary. So please understand that any doctrine that comes after salvation means that you're growing in Christ. But if you didn't know that, okay, if you didn't know anything beyond what I just read you and you are saved, oh yeah, I believe what you just told me about Jesus, and you've never heard of a Sabbath day in your life, is that going to keep you from being saved? Absolutely not. But that's what the Seventh-day Adventists do. They add the Sabbath into that. Or people will say, you, you have to believe this, or you, know, you have to believe in a pre-trib rapture or a post-trib rapture. Nothing, nothing to do with the issue of salvation. That is doctrine. Okay, and I, I think I've said this here before, but it's worth remembering. Let's make it very simple. John 3.16. Take your pet peeve and add it in to John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him and believes in the rapture, pre-trip pre rapture, will be saved. Right? It doesn't say that. Take that and add it in, and you'll see how stupid it sounds. I don't care what it is. And who observes the Sabbath will be saved. It doesn't say that. All it says is, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him, uh, believes in him, shall not perish, but have everlasting life. That is it. Take your pet peeve or somebody else's and put it into John 3.16 and see if it fits. It doesn't. It doesn't fit. Doctrine is doctrine. Salvation is a different issue. Salvation is getting saved. Doctrine is becoming a disciple and learning the things of Christ so that you live a holy life, so that you're sanctified and, and teaching other people properly. Okay. Bad doctrine doesn't keep anybody from being saved, but it'll keep the next guy from being saved. 
That's what's important about doctrine, because if you have the wrong doctrine, you are not going to present the, to them the proper Christ. And then you have a false gospel, which is addressed in Galatians chapter 1. Okay, but, yes? So you can't be saved and do all those things that you read on uh, Revelation? What's that? Oh, well, that, that's a completely separate issue that comes down once again to doctrine. That comes down to doctrine. How if you reconcile that? I have no problem reconciling that at all because Paul wrote the words of salvation. Paul wrote those words. Okay. What if you are safe and you backslide? People do it all the time. People backslide all the time. That takes you to 2 Peter chapter 1, which I've read before, and go read it again. Just start in 1 and get down to verse 9, and he says, do this, do this, do this, do this, in order. And if you do these things, you won't forget that you were saved and you'll live out a holy life. But he never says that you aren't saved. He says that per person has forgotten that he was cleansed from his past sins. In other words, he's saved. He's just forgotten it. And he's out there living an inappropriate life, and he will have to stand before the Lord at judgment. I have no problem okay, so defending the doctrine. Not go to the lake of fire like Revelation no, because they have been cleansed. What does Jesus say in Revelation chapter 1 through 3? He who overcomes will inherit this. He who overcomes will inherit that. Well, Paul, uh, John tells us who the overcomer is. Who is the overcomer? It is he who has believed in Jesus. That's right. So you have overcome by faith in Christ. You are now in Christ. You cannot become un-in Christ. Okay? But you can suffer the consequences of your decisions in Christ. And that's why when Paul says, expel the man from the congregation, he's no longer in fellowship with the Lord. And then he may go out and he may do the things that he wants to do with somebody and catch AIDS and then die. He hasn't lost his salvation, but he's lost his life, and he's embarrassed the Lord in the process. I have no problem defending the doctrine of eternal salvation. Zero. If you, if let me put it this way, we'll start right here. You are saved right here. It is a by what does it say in Ephesians two eight and nine? You are saved by grace through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, and not of works, lest any man should boast. Okay, so it's not of works that you have been saved by grace through faith. So you've been saved. Now. Three years later, you do something, and your salvation is taken away from you. What does that mean? It was not a gift, and it was always by works. It was never by grace through faith, because it doesn't matter when the work is required. Anytime, anytime, from the moment that you call on Jesus or to the very last breath of your life. If you can lose your salvation, then it was dependent on works. And that is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is you are saved by grace through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God and not of works, lest any man should boast. Everything after salvation comes into rewards and losses. Everything. Because if it is any time something that you had to do in order to keep your salvation, it was never a gift in the first place. Okay. He's speaking about the unregenerate in the world that have never come to Christ. And they think that they're saved like these people in these churches. They think that they're saved because they're out doing good stuff. Well, what are they doing? They're working. They're working. They're not trusting in Jesus Christ. So there's a giant difference between the two. If you are trusting in yourself in any way, shape, or form, you are probably not saved. Or you've forgotten you were saved and you're just living a miserable life. You're not living in the joy of Christ. Yes. Talk louder because nobody can hear you. Okay. Uh, they are saved. Yes. And what do you think in heaven between people who have worked their whole life 
Well, that comes down to that comes down to rewards and losses. Okay. That that's what it, what the difference is. We have absolutely zero idea. Okay. The Bible does not say the crown of glory that yes. we put at Christ's feet. Absolutely. Well, you know what? You know, people say that we're going to cast our crowns at Jesus' feet. It never says that. All it says is that the twenty-four elders cast their crowns at his feet. Oh, okay. Now, if they are representative of the church, then we do. But if they're not, if they're just the twenty-four elders then it doesn't say that. So I don't want to add into the word of God there. I, I, you know, people say that and we get that into our head, but the Bible doesn't say it, it says the 24 elders cast their crowns at his feet. So unless they are simply a picture of all of the people in the church, which you could probably make that argument, but it doesn't say that. So I'm not going to go that far. But a, a nice thought is, you know, Jesus has been spending 2000 years preparing the place. For he built, he built everything that we see in this, everything in six days. He's been building a church now for 2,000 years and a home for the people of the church for 2,000 years. It's going to be pretty fantastic. But how, I, I, you probably weren't here when I said this before, but the best example I can give of what it will be like, the difference between you and me, or I'm just saying not you and me, I'm saying you and me, two people. Okay, you have this person that's done a lot for G Billy Graham and um, uh, somebody that, the guy on the cross, he's saved, right? You'll be with me in paradise, so he's saved. Okay, first person to die after Jesus, right? right? He's the first person admitted he's a criminal. Anyway, you got the two. He didn't do anything for Jesus except believe Billy Graham did all kinds right. of stuff. Okay, so what's the difference? Billy Graham, or we'll say this guy first. This guy walks up to Jesus and on his way up, somebody gives him a little thimble. It's about this big and he walks up and Jesus fills it up, right? And he fills it up and it just keeps overflowing. And he walks away with this thimble that is overflowing for all of eternity. Anytime he wants a drink, there's water there for him, right? The difference is Billy Graham walks up and they give him a giant barrel. And they say, here, take this up to the Lord. And Billy Graham walks up with the barrel and he starts filling it. It just starts overflowing. And he walks around with this barrel overflowing for all of eternity. In the end, they both have an eternal fount of life. It may be a thimble full or it may be a barrel full, but they will both have an eternal fount of life. It's just the difference between this guy get, got more of it than he did. But if you think about it, he actually got the same amount as far as eternity is concerned. He's just always going to have that stream of, in other words, we don't know beyond what the Lord says. I'm going to bless you in abundance. And Billy Graham, all the people go up and they see what he did. Wonderful stuff for the Lord Jesus. But in the end, it all belongs to Jesus anyway. So it doesn't matter. It's, it's not one thing to argue over. It's not one thing that people, hey, I don't personally care. As long as I get to see Jesus, I can stand at the very back of the line. Doesn't bother me one iota, as long as I get to see Jesus. However, when the rapture, when the trumpet sounds, I will jump to beat everybody up there, because I want to be the first to see him. Anyway, um, we'll go on. Let's see here. Um, uh, displayed uh, 14, oh yeah, 14.1, freedom from sin. Uh, per, uh, here we go. Person who is weak in the faith is not someone who lacks faith in Christ, okay? Oh, wait a minute. I skipped something here. Um, rest of worship. Yeah. Uh, freedom from. Okay. Yeah, I'll, I'll read that. A person who is weak in the faith is not someone who lacks faith in Christ. Either a person has faith and is saved or they lack faith and they are not saved. That's where I stopped. To be weak in the faith is to be saved and yet unsure of what is allowed and what is not allowed within the context of the faith. Okay. Jews coming to faith do so from the lens of the law where certain foods are prohibited. Everybody know a Jew that's come to Christ? A lot of them came out of living no pork, no pork, and that's in their head for the rest of their life. They also come from those <laughs> rules concerning the Sabbath observance. And by the way, the Saturday is, I'm sorry, the Sabbath is 
Saturday. It is not a Sunday. There's no such thing as a Sunday Sabbath, okay? Sunday is a day of worship. It's a day of rest. Whatever you want to call it, it is not a Sabbath, okay? Sabbath is a Saturday. It is not a term which is appropriate for Christianity, except as is concerned with the training on what the law taught. It is not a concept which is to be applied to a particular observance within the faith. That is, and that's going to be refuted, as I said, in probably three or four more verses. I don't think we'll get to them today, but maybe we will. In a couple more verses, we are going to see that the Sabbath is not something that we impose on other people. It is not imposed on us. We need to know what it is because it was a part of the law. We also need to know how to defend against it when somebody says, you're not observing the Sabbath and you're going to heck. Okay, sorry, that doesn't work that way. Others may come into the faith with preconceptions about music, types of clothing, the drinking of alcohol holiday celebrations, and on and on and on. Anybody here, the people that go, they absolutely rail against Christmas. You mention Christmas and they're like, oh, how could you celebrate Christmas? That's the devil and that's a Catholic conspiracy and it, it, that's their hang up. That's what they, Jehovah Witnesses. Jehovah's Witnesses don't celebrate any of them. They don't even get into it. But Christmas is like, you get some Christians that are just absolutely convinced that it, it was established by the Catholics to take our eyes off of Jesus and blah, 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 blah. Listen, if Christmas bothers you, don't celebrate Christmas. Leave the people that do alone. If they're worshiping the Lord, let them worship the Lord how they want, okay? Anyway, um, they come to faith um, with all types of baggage that they carry from their previous lives. Without proper knowledge concerning these issues, they are therefore weak in the faith. The reason why we're here tonight is so that we can become strong in the faith. All right. If we don't know what the Bible teaches or if we have an incorrect analysis of what the Bible teaches, we will be weak in the faith. That's all there is to it. When you go out onto the baseball field and you don't know how to hit the ball, you are weak in baseball. And eventually you learn the timing and you hit the thing and you get a grounder and you get to first base. OK, you're pretty good. And then eventually you learn what what's his name? Babe Ruth knew. And he mm -hmm. learned exactly when to hit it, how to hit it, where to hit it. And he was a great in the baseball field. And that's what we do. It takes training. It takes uh, practice. It takes patience. It takes understanding. And if you're not in Bible class or if you're not listening to the Bible when you're driving or whatever you're doing, you're not growing in the Bible. The more that you grow in the Bible, the stronger you will be in the faith as long as it is proper teaching. Okay. If you get bad teaching, then you're going to be weak in the faith against somebody that's good teaching. So I, and I say it constantly don't listen to just one teacher and that's like committing a teacher suicide by saying that because it's like i'm not going to listen to charlie anymore i'm going to listen to four other people and i don't have time to listen to him well as long as they're four good people please do i would rather have you listen to four people and say i don't have time for charlie this week than to listen to just me if i'm wrong on a subject the more understanding you have of scripture the better off you're going to be anyway um uh paul says we are to receive such meaning the weak in the faith as fellow believers and to do so without disputes over doubtful things. The term here for doubtful things, I need to circle that because I put F-O-R-E like playing uh, golf there. Anyway, uh, the term here for doubtful things is literally judgments of thoughts. We are asked to not argue over such judgments. Having said that, this was written at a time when the principles of the faith were not yet written and categorized into what we now call the New Testament. Everybody got that? Paul is telling them to not dispute over doubtful things, but guess what? He was giving us instruction in things which are no longer doubtful because they're written down, right? So we need to understand what he is writing 
in the context of it, because when he's saying don't dispute over doubtful things, some of the doubtful things he's going to mention are things that he actually later clarifies. Okay, And then it's no longer a doubtful thing. It's something that we are to stand fast on and say, pay attention. Paul wrote this. Okay, um, let's see here. Um, knowing this, we should receive fellow Christians without disputes, but we also need to be ready to defend our freedoms in Christ and also be ready to instruct the weak in the faith as to what is right and proper. Eventually, a person weak in the faith may become someone who is belligerent or obstinate in the faith because they don't know and they cling on to things which are incorrect. When shown that ty certain types of foods can in fact be eaten, this is somebody weak in the faith, they may balk and actually accuse the brother who is stronger in the faith, thus the weaker actually presumes to be the stronger through their lack of proper understanding of what is acceptable. And you see this a lot, especially in social media. You see it all the time. You hear it in uh, churches where they dispute over these things. The person that has absolutely no idea what scripture says has been told that you can't eat pork and he's going to stick with it and he's going to make everybody else try to look stupid by his weakness in his faith. He actually doesn't understand what the Bible says about the issue. Okay, This becomes perverse dissension and it is very common. When someone willfully rejects what is clearly presented and shows a defiant attitude, they should no longer be received. As a matter of fact, Paul says, and I think it's the book of Titus, he says, warn a divisive person once, warn him a second time, and then have nothing to do with him. Cut him off. Completely cut him off. Have nothing to do with him. Because this person has been told what the Bible says, and they have ignored it. And the Bible is our standard. I get this all the time when people talk about the law of Moses. I will send them to the book of Hebrews and I'll say, do you know it says in the book of Hebrews that the law is annulled in Christ? And they deny that. They absolutely deny that it says that in there. And I'll say it a second time. I'll take it to another verse and say exactly the same thing. The law is obsolete because of Christ's work. And they deny it again. And that's it with them. I don't deal with them anymore because they are divisive. They are warped and they are not pursuing Christ. They're pursuing the law. They're pursuing their righteousness in the presence of Christ, and they're denying the all-sufficiency of what Christ did. You have to be firm with people when they are divisive like that. If he doesn't know, you show him where he's wrong. And if he continues to deny the obvious, which is written in Scripture, warn them once, warn them twice, and have nothing to do with them. Because, as it says in the Bible, uh, uh, you know, warn a fool, lest he become wise in his own eyes. But then it says, don't dispute a fool because you will become like him. I know that's a little bit of a misquote, but there's a point where you warn them and then there's a point where you cut them off. No longer dispute them because eventually you will reduce yourself down to his level and everybody will see only backbiting and bickering and verses being taken out of context and it confuses everybody, okay? Show them from scripture and then be done with it, okay? Uh, let's see here, um, yeah. When someone, read it again, when someone willfully rejects what is clearly presented and shows a defiant attitude, they should no longer be received. The key to all of this is, believe it or not, Christian love. When it is demonstrated by knowing or by the one lacking knowledge, a harmonious relationship will more likely continue. Here's my little poem for you today. You have ham and that'll be okay with me, but I will abstain. It's really not my thing. I know that either way we have been set free and so between us let peace and harmony ring. If such an attitude is demonstrated, then the weak and the strong will exercise their liberties without animosity or dissension. Paul will continue to speak 
of the, these things and explain these things as chapter 14 progresses. Life application. Don't set out to ruin another's faith over what is acceptable. Receive one with one another without lording your knowledge over those you disagree with. Rather, stand ready to demonstrate what is right directly from Scripture and without fighting or accusation. Okay? Meats is a very, very easy one to go through because there are people that absolutely believe that they cannot eat certain things. You know, the Seventh-day Adventists, when one of my friends was over there, and they couldn't eat. They, they were told, you can't drink Pepsi. I thought they were vegetarian. Well, yeah, for the most part, not all of them, but most Seventh-day Adventist denominations or whatever, they, they're vegetarians. Yeah. But not only that, you can't drink Pepsi. And I said, yeah, I mean, this is before I knew anything, anything about the Bible. This is when I was a real young Christian. Remember when they were going over to uh, uh, play the violin at the, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, that guy. I couldn't remember his name. Anyway, no Pepsi. Hey, Caffeine. yeah, whatever. Is it in here? Okay. Is it in the, is it in scripture? If it's not, let it go. Okay. Anyway, just, just so you know, that was one of the things that they told him there. Well, we can't drink Pepsi anyway. Yeah. Okay. What? Yeah. Well, you shouldn't now. Yeah. With all the stuff in it, but okay. 14, two, let's see here. Um, 14, two, four. Oh, oh, wait, I'm back in one Corinthians. I never turned back from there. 14, two, for one believes he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables talking about being vegetarian right let me read it again for one believes he may eat all things paul makes nothing out out of bounds nothing when he says all things that is in all things not every time in the bible all means all sometimes it is explained elsewhere in this case all means all that takes us back to, does anybody know where, what paul says right here in 14 2 takes us back to it's the book called uh, begins with a G and ends with Genesis. Okay, yeah, okay. And then the chapter nine. Okay, this is where Paul is taking us back to. And as I asked about the same issue in uh, uh, the sermon on Sunday, I'll ask it now. Does Genesis come before or after the Law of Moses? Okay, there you go. Y'all got that right. Okay, here's what it says. In here it says. Um, let me find it. Okay, yeah, then God spoke to, uh, no, that's the covenant, and he says, I will remember the sign of the covenant, and um, I, I've got to find this verse, and I want to read it to you. Um, oh, yeah, it's before that. Okay, there it is. It says, um, and the fear of you and the dread of you shall be on every beast of the earth, on every bird of the air, on all that move on the earth, and on all the fish of the sea. They are given into your hand. Everything, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you every living thing every moving thing that lives shall be food for you i have given you all things even as the green herbs okay the law of moses pertains to what group of people the jews and only the jews it was a law that was given to them for to lead the world to jesus to lead us to jesus christ it was a one-time dispensation which is as i said annulled in Christ. It is obsolete in Christ. It is set aside in Christ. It is nailed to the cross. Every living thing that was given to Noah and his sons never changed. It never changed after the flood of Noah. All people on earth, not one of them sinned by eating anything that was on this planet. Nothing. Every living thing is food for you, with the exception of man, because if you kill man by man, man shall your blood be shed. So we, that's an implicit there. Every living thing on this planet you can eat if you want. Now, obviously, if it's poisonous, you're not going to want to eat it. That's not the point. 
The point is that if it is something that can be eaten and you want to eat it, eat it. That never changed for the people of the world. The law came in with Israel. It ended with Christ. It is over. And that is what Paul is referring to right here. If people can't understand that and you show them that and they disagree with you, then you tell them and then have nothing to do with them. If they accept you eating and they just don't, that's fine. I For five years, I didn't eat meat, right? I saw, uh, we were talking about this last night, poor Hedico had to cook two meals every single night because I saw meat processing on the Discovery Channel. Oh. It was gross. And I said, I'm never eating meat again. Oh yeah. So I just gave it up. It wasn't a religious thing. It was just, it was gross, right? And then I went to Israel and they had lamb there. Oh, it smelled so good. I had it and I came home and she's been the happiest lady ever since. <laughs> Boy, but yeah, it, that had nothing to do with religion. That was just, man, if you watch meat processing, you ain't gonna wanna eat it either. I, I was like, oh, oh. But, or vegetable candy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, so here we go. Paul is referring to Genesis chapter nine right there. He's referring back because this is the standard of God. I'll read it again. For one believes he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. Well, guess what? Only vegetables was actually before the flood, when man was only given the green herbs to eat of the grass, and they didn't eat any animals, right? Well, God changed that in this dispensation, which has been going on ever since, with the exception of the law of Moses, which is now done, okay? Concerning matters of conscience, doubtful things, Paul now begins with food. Excuse me. He says that one believes... He may eat all things. This refers to a person well-grounded in Scripture. He understands the dispensational model and what God has ordained. After the flood, God told Noah, oh, I refer to it right here. I've read it to you. I won't read it again. This has never been revoked for non-Israelites. After this, at the time of the giving of the law, God gave dietary restrictions to the nation of Israel. These restrictions applied to them and to them alone. These fell under the law, and the law is now obsolete in Christ. Here, you can write it down. Hebrews 7, 18, Hebrews 8, 13, and Hebrews 10, verse 9, among other passages. Those are explicit. There are about 27 implicit ones in the book of Hebrews as well. We're going to go through every one of them in the next 300 days, okay? Um, but having said that, um, I had a point in my head that I was going to, uh, I went out and went right out the other ear. Okay, there are now no, zero. No dietary restrictions because the only charge to what was ordained at Noah's time was, or the only change was the law of Moses, which is set aside in Christ. That was the only change, and it was only for a select group of people for a given amount of time. This is confirmed explicitly in Acts chapter 15, 18 through 21. Might as well take you there and just read it to you. And it is testified to Paul time and time and time again in his writings, the Christian is at liberty to eat all things okay all things there is nothing that is prohibited from us to eat okay but i'm going to take you to i said acts chapter 15 this is the council in jerusalem which is what acts 15 is and it says here in 18 we could go back to the uh thing about cornelius as well but people will misuse that and they'll misinterpret it but anyway acts 15 and it says in verse 18 um, known to god from eternity are all his works therefore i judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God, but to write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled, and from blood. For Moses says, throughout many generations, those who preach him in every city being read in the synagogues every Sabbath. Okay, guess what? I had a very good friend of mine actually email me about these verses today. And he said, are these prescriptive? Because Paul writes elsewhere that... Um, he says these are only descriptive, right? 
because he writes elsewhere, he redefines what it says in Acts chapter 15. And I said, not exactly. They are prescriptive, but they're prescriptive for the context. They're descriptive in what is going on, but the context is that the, as we know, the structure of uh, Acts goes from Jew to Gentile, from a Jew-led church to a Gentile-led church, from Peter to Paul, from Jerusalem to Rome. It's making this transition. And so Acts chapter 15 was written prescriptive for the time to accommodate the Jews who could not, un they, they just couldn't bear giving up their culture the dietary restrictions, observing the Sabbath and all that, and they continued to do so. And there was nothing wrong with that, as long as they were understanding that they were doing it in Christ and that they were freed from that obligation. Okay, but that's what was going on. And then Paul wrote the epistles after this was written in Acts chapter 15, and his epistles define what it means, things offered to idols. Does everybody remember the passages in 1 Corinthians where he says, go to an a, uh, a temple and eat anything with a clear conscience. It doesn't matter what you eat. If it's offered to an idol, an idol is nothing in all the world. But if somebody says to you, that was offered to an idol, don't eat it. Why? Not for your conscience, but for his conscience, because he thinks that you're accepting that idol. You are worshiping that idol. It's not your conscience that's defiled. It's his, because he doesn't understand your liberty in Christ. So everything in context, until Paul wrote that to clarify it, those words were prescriptive, but now they are descriptive of what occurred and why. So at the time it was prescriptive. Yes, go ahead. Charlie, what is the strangled and blood? Okay, strangled. When you strangled an animal, it wasn't properly bled. And when it wasn't properly bled, it didn't meet the dietary restrictions, which now reminds me of what I forgot a second ago. So oh. I'm going to tell you that in a second. But strangling an animal left the blood in the, the animal, and so you weren't allowed to eat blood. And then blood was blood. Well, that's even, I hate to say it, as gross as people that eat blood pudding and drink blood. And all, I'm talking about, you know, they, they'll have like pig blood for dinner. Oh. Just disgusting. Hey, listen, Paul never speaks about it. And Paul's writings are prescriptive. So if you want to do that, you're not going to heck for it. But that is just plain gross. I'm sorry. But what I was thinking of is even the law of Moses, those dietary restrictions. And if you don't know this, go watch the Leviticus 11 sermons where I talk about the dietary laws of Israel. Every single one of the animals that was prohibited is mentioned by name, pointed to Jesus in his work, and what goes on in the church. Every one of them, the bat, the hoople, all of them, every single one of them pointed to something to do with a spiritual application of what we're not to do in Christ. It, it's really astonishing. So if you haven't seen that, go back and watch those dietary sermons, and you'll understand even why they were given to Israel. It wasn't because they were unclean in and of themselves. It was because God was making spiritual lessons for the people. And if they had picked up their concordance and said, well, this word that describes this bat comes from this word in our language, they would have understood that. But like I say, we don't do that with our languages. We just read over things. It takes people to understand what is being taught. Here's one example of many. The pig's foot is clothed, okay? It's not fully divided. Rightly dividing the word is what that's pointing to. The scales on a fish have to be there, okay? The fins on the fish have to be there, and it points to something about the word of God. Every single thing. Go back and watch those sermons, and you'll understand, okay? Everything is acceptable to eat. Our consciences should be clean from that. When we are told something is from an idol, then we don't eat it, not for our sake, but for theirs. And that will be explained. We'll be in Corinthians in a couple years, and we'll go through that, okay? But for right now... Um, let's see here. No dietary restrictions. We have the liberty to eat all things. However, Paul goes on with the word, but that's given to show a contrast to this thought. 
<clears throat> this is concerning he who is weak. This individual, weak in the faith and in the understanding of the freedom which is found in Christ, as he says, eats only vegetables. Such a person may have a conscience about the slaughtering of animals for food. I mean, we all should. We shouldn't want to harm animals, but God has given us food. To, you know, I will say this, and I'm going to have a lot of people really mad at me about this. But one of the things that I have to tell you, we impose our standards on the rest of the world all the time. I know you don't want to hear it. What do they eat in China and in Korea that we would never think of eating here? Never. And we go over there and we say how bad those people are. We're eating animals too. They're just eating a different animal, animals they don't have. I am sorry that people eat those things because I love every puppy on this planet. But that is, there is nothing in the Bible that says that. We are now, what are we doing? We're doing exactly what we should not be doing by elevating the creature above the creator because Paul has said all things are good. I don't, you know what, I, I don't even want to know what I'm eating when I was in Asia. When they served me a meal out at the stall, a stall is you go out and you just walk down the road and there's stalls all over and people are just cooking stuff. I never asked what it was because it could have been anything. No, why would you? It could have been anything. It could have been, I got to tell you what, there are some really big water rats over there. Oh, Listen, I, it, they're, they're very popular in Vietnam. They, they literally, they're very popular to eat in Vietnam. Yeah, water rats are giant. You know, I never asked because I didn't want to know, but <sighs> anyway, we can't impose our standards on the rest of the world. And I always find that offensive when people do that, because, hey, you know what? That is their culture and God has ordained that this is okay. So as tough as it is for us to look at certain animals and say we shouldn't eat them, I agree. But at the same time, they have a right to do it. Don't tell them they're doing wrong. Okay. Anyway, um, enough of that. But if you know what I'm talking about, it's, to me, it's one of those heartbreaking things. Um, okay, so, but this is the but. This individual's weak in the faith. Okay, he might uh, be worried about slaughtering animals for food, or they may have a conscience about the slaughtered animals which are killed and dedicated to an idol. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 8, which discusses this issue in detail. We can go through that sometime, okay? Finally, they may have come out of Judaism. And they may be weak in their ability to overcome the dietary restrictions of the law they left behind to receive Jesus Christ. People who fit into this weak category are those who have a conscience that is not developed enough to understand these freedoms properly. What they need is sound instruction, not a belligerent attitude. We've got four more minutes, so i got to read quickly. Knowing your Bible and being able to explain the passages above that we've been talking about will set them on a course of proper understanding and into the freedom of the faith okay however and having noted this admonition from paul it is to be understood that the bible is now complete at paul's time it was still being written it is also set it is fixed and it is understandable if an individual receives this instruction properly and it's the same as I said about the last verse, and remains defiant and hostile towards those who exercise their freedom, they are usurping God's rule and what God has ordained. If they don't eat meat for personal reasons, I didn't for five years after becoming a Christian too, they need to remain quiet about it and not be arrogant or antagonistic towards those who do. If their attitude is improper towards meat eaters, they are to be wholly rejected as unsound teachers and even heretics, because this is an issue that would border on heresy. Paul could not be clearer that reinserting precepts from the law is another gospel. That's Galatians 1.8. I talked about it earlier in a different context, but it is to be condemned. He says it is anathema. It is to be condemned. 
okay? If somebody says that you are not to eat certain meats, especially because of the law of Moses, they are a heretic and you are to reject them completely, absolutely and wholly. Don't converse with those people because they are twisted. This issue comes down to one, knowledge, two, sensitivity, and three, the introduction of heresy. That is what this issue deals with solely, those three things, knowledge, sensitivity, and then the introduction of heresy. The sensitivity is something I saw Linda cringing when I was about to talk about certain things in Asia. That's sensitivity. There's nothing wrong with that. We're all sensitive in certain areas. But when you take your sensitivity and you apply it inappropriately, then it will become bad doctrine, okay? The sound Christian is to carefully weigh the source and the attitude of the individual to determine these precepts. Although jumping ahead in the context of Romans 14, it is a good time to look at this issue from outside a myopic viewpoint on the matter of food. If Paul says one believes he may eat all things, and he doesn't later correct this during his discussion, which he will not, then it shows definitively that a believer can, in fact, eat all things. Thank you. There is a complete freedom in Christ to eat anything anything that has been given by God for the people of the world. Stand fast in this and do not be led astray through aberrant teachings. Life application, pass the ham, please. <laughs> Heavenly Father, thank you so very much for our freedom in Christ. Thank you that we can worship you in freedom and in spirit and in truth. Thank you that we can eat whatever we want by giving you the glory for having created it for our benefit. Thank you that for whatever reason it is, you saw fit to redeem mankind. It's something that astonishes me to this day, that you would redeem people that so willfully rejected you and continued to reject you throughout history. Even your people that you called as your own did it and did it and did it, and you still sent Jesus to live among them and to call them and to save them. Thank you for that freedom that we have in Christ that clothes us, that gives us a glory that we could not otherwise possess so that when you look at us, you look at people that are free from sin. Thank you for that. Lord, we exalt you. We praise you. You are so very good to us. Thank you for all that you've done for us. Once again, we want to lift up the names of the people that we mentioned at the beginning of the uh, service today. Please be with them. Help them through their difficulties and their trials. And Lord, just uh, be with your people. And we just thank you for the chance to meet here and talk about this wonderfully precious word. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, let me back this up and say goodbye. And we got that just on time today. Just on time. Back that up to break.